Please remain standing for the Scripture reading from Ezekiel. I'll give you a moment or two to find in your Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to parallel this passage with uh, our reading in Romans 11, though we'll be focused largely on Ezekiel. We're going to read from Ezekiel 36 and 21 through to verse 36. 21 to 36 from Ezekiel 36. Let us hear the word of God. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you... I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to keep to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses." And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations." It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being at the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Amen. May the Lord instruct us from his holy word. Please be seated. I've entitled this in your notes, as you see, The Puritan Hope, but I've also given it a subtitle, 
Um, a little tongue-in-cheek, but nonetheless, why I am a kingdom optimist, and you should be too. I do fear that a pessimism is crippling the church, and I want us to return, even scripturally, to that sense and understanding of the sovereignty of God in the kingdom work of God and the I will do it of God. We have been given a great commission. The old hymn says, we face a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. So, the task drives us to our knees. What do we pray? Well, we just prayed it, didn't we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I have a young man in our home congregation with whom I occasionally have a theological conversation, and he will regularly say to me, I wish I had your optimism. I just don't see it, he said. Now, that doesn't mean he just doesn't see it in society, which that's one thing. But he meant, again, because he's biblically literate and a young theologian, he doesn't see it in Scripture. And I said, read the prayer. Pray the prayer. That's where I get my optimism. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. Is it pointless to pray the Lord's Prayer? Why are we taught to pray that way? So, as we look at Ezekiel 36 and we see the Lord's promises, and, and not only even promises, but, but determined activity, we see that He will do it. And there I get my optimism, and I parallel that with Romans 11, particularly pertaining to Jewish redemption, Jewish restoration, Jewish salvation. With Ezekiel 36 in one hand and Romans 9 through 11 in the other, I see the Puritan hope. Now, without going into in-depth exegesis of uh, the, the challenging verses of Ezekiel 36, I do want to say that I believe this passage has been fulfilled, but not fully filled. And I think therein lies the, the, the challenge and difficulty for, for theologians and scholars and exegetes as we look at some scriptural passages. There is a sense sometimes that they are already fulfilled, but not fully filled. And that's the, the tension that I want to hold as we look at Ezekiel 36. We might say, well, didn't this come to pass at the return from exile? We sang, uh, and, and our opening praise was Psalm 126. What was that psalm about? It was when they had, were returned from exile, we were like men who dreamed. The Lord had done great things for us, said the Jewish remnant faithful. Was that the restoration that we're reading of here? Well, it was fulfilled, but not fully filled. When the second temple was rebuilt, was that fulfilled? Yes, but not fully filled. Fast forward to uh, Jesus' day, and you might then think, well, was it fulfilled in Jesus' day? Remember Jesus talking with Nicodemus. 
and Nicodemus couldn't get his head around the whole issue of what being born again do I need to go back into my mother's womb and be no born anothen born from above Ezekiel spoke of that hey Nicodemus did you not read your Ezekiel you are Israel's teacher do you not know these things that was what Jesus said to Nicodemus because in Ezekiel there was the promise that the Spirit would come and there would be the putting the Spirit within the heart and moving the person to obey the rules as we read there in verse 27. So when Jesus was interacting with Nicodemus he was thinking of this passage. Was it fulfilled? Yes, but not fully filled. Was it fulfilled in the day of Pentecost? Day of Pentecost. Acts 2, you have the 3,000 who were cut to the heart. This work of God, which he speaks of here in the restoring, not just to a land, but to their Lord. And so this revival in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, this was a fulfillment of Ezekiel. Yes, it was, but not a fully fulfillment. And so also as we continue in the New Testament, we read of Paul writing to the Romans, and we read a portion of it in Romans 11, and Romans 9 through 11 is, is even the larger passage. And it speaks of that restoration, God being able to graft them in again. The failure of Israel meant the blessing of the Gentiles, but that's not the end of it. What will their inclusion be, says the apostle? Life from the dead. So, there, there, there's the anticipation. What will their inclusion be? God is able to graft in again. This was the Puritan hope. And the Puritan hope references Ezekiel 36 and Romans 9 through 11 that one day, we don't know when, and we don't have the time scale written up on our wall, but one day the Lord will perform his unfinished business with the ancient people. What we read of in Romans 11 called the irrevocable promises. Irrevocable means they're not able to be taken back. If he said it, he's going to do it. And that's what I want to bring before us as we look at the passage in Ezekiel. And particularly, and again, it's not going to be in-depth. There's a lot there. But I want us to focus in on a few particular intentional words from the Lord. From verse 21 and 22, we see his concern. I had concern. Then in verses 23 to 25, we're going to read about his vindication. I will vindicate. 26 to 32, we read about his action. I will act. And then 33 to 36, we find, I will do it. So it's, it's those things that I want us to focus on as we walk our way through this passage. And I think, really, as you, as you look at this, you see the whole passage is drenched with the I am of God. And it's something that we forget, the sovereign work of the Lord in building the kingdom. And this passage is, is full of divine sovereignty and divine activity. And indeed, uh, if we had time, which we won't, uh, we could go into chapter 37, which is the, 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 the well-known Valley of Dry Bones. And again, if you want to get the sermon on the Valley of Dry Bones, take Spurgeon's sermon from the table 
And that's on Ezekiel 37. And what we find in 37 is really just a vision and, in effect, an illustration of 36. What happens in the Valley of Dry Bones? Well, preach to the bones and pray for the wind. And when the preaching to the bones occurs and the wind of God comes upon the bones, there is the reviving. This is the restoration of Israel. This is the restoration of the Jewish people that we labor for, that we long for, that we have a Puritan hope for, that we preach to bones. We stand on street corners. We give out tracts. We talk to Jewish people. They're bones. They're dead. They don't want to hear. Pray for the wind. And as the Lord's people pray for the wind, the wind of God blows upon the preached word, and souls come to life. This is what Ezekiel is all about. This is what Jewish mission is all about. Well, I want us to proceed swiftly as much as we can. I'm going to spend a large amount of our time on the first point, so just in case I get to point two and you're looking at your watches and think he's got another hour to go, no, I'll be swifter on the other points. A large Point, part of our time will be on this first point, because I really feel that this is where we need to get it, and when we get it, then the other points will flow. But first of all, I want us to see in 21 and 22, he has concern for his holy name. I had concern for my name. We pray, hallowed be your name. What are our prayer meetings like? Are we so self-obsessed in our praying? We sometimes joke and say that some church prayer meetings are organ recitals, in the sense of reciting all the organs of the body that have gone wrong, that need prayer for. Yes. But so often we are obsessed with ourselves. How often do we pause? And begin, our Father in heaven, hallowed your kingdom, your will. Do you have a concern for his holy name? We need to realize that he has concern for his holy name. As we look around our society, we may say that the name is profaned. The image of God in the womb is brutally desecrated. The image of God in the divine order of male and female is perverted and slandered in all manner of gender fluidity, and we're promoting this insanity among children. Heaven, we have a problem. And he answers, I have concern. I have concern for the profaning of my name. This shall stop. In whatever way the Lord wills, it shall stop. We trust and we hope that it will be by the Lord's revival and reviving mercy. Otherwise, it will be his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, it's Pride Month. He has concern for the perversion and the profanation of his holy name. Perhaps he should bring a flood 
No, no, he promised with a rainbow never to do that again. Perhaps he will bring a cosmic storm upon modern Sodom. No, my understanding, my belief, my glory and the praise and promises of God are his graciousness, his mercy. You know, sometimes people think that it's all downhill from here. The reason I am a kingdom optimist is that God is concerned, and He will do certain things. Some have said that um, we really just simply need to escape this earth. We just need to get away from this earth. I, I know that's coming in our time in each one of our time. But prior to that, we have a work to do. He has concern. When Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, we often in Jewish mission, we reference 9 through 11. Major passages, please read them for your homework on Sunday afternoon. But Romans 8 is a wonderful passage where we know that it begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. These are wonderful bookends to that chapter and indeed to the whole of chapter 1 through 8. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing, nothing, mean all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then when we come into chapter 9 of Romans, Paul has a problem. But Lord, my people are separate. Lord, your people are separate. And only a few of us have believed. There's only a little remnant. What's going on, Lord? And so in 9 through 11, it's the Lord's answer, I have concern, and I will do these things. There's a classic book. I don't have it on my bookstall. I'm afraid I used to have a few copies. I don't have it today, but The Puritan Hope, written by Ian Murray. I commend it to you. Banner of Truth, produce it. And Ian Murray, writing in that, he says, Puritan thought never gave way to the feeling that because the condition of the world was so deplorable, the second coming of Christ was the only hope for mankind. In other words, everything's useless. We just have to wait for the second coming. And Murray says, in their mind, in the Puritan mind, to have done so would have been to fall into unbelief in regard to the promised results of the first coming. In other words, because of Christ's first coming, there is a world to be saved, and a world will be saved. We don't have to put our heads down or hunker down and and, and batten down the hatches and and just wait for the end and, and, and for God to bring us all home. We have a world to win for Christ. His first coming was to usher in the kingdom. Christ is king. My Reformed Presbyterian brethren have that strong understanding, and I trust we in the Reformed Presbyterian world too have a strong understanding that Christ is king. Not an inch of this territory is not his. He has bound the strong man. He is plundering the goods of Satan. When Christ came, it was the ushering in of the kingdom. When Christ came to a little insignificant nation in the Middle East, my Scots-Irish ancestors were dancing around stone in the highlands of Scotland. The world was in darkness when Christ came. 
The nations of the world were in darkness, but the light of the glory of God came upon a little insignificant nation. And the gospel went forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the ends of the earth, and Christ was plundering Satan's goods. And the gospel went into all the world because he had concern. It's our first point. Second point I want us to raise and, and to be aware of, we find his vindication. The vindication, verses 23 to 25, we read of the vindication of his holiness in Israel. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And he does it in Israel. I will vindicate my holiness through you, we read in verse, the last part of verse 23. So let's note the order here. God is vindicating his holiness through the ancient people. One of the commentators in Duguid writes this. He says, if there had been no other reasoning involved for God than the necessity of dealing with Israel's sin, permanent wrath would have sufficed. In other words, if God simply had to deal with Israel's sin, he would just brought his judgment upon them. But that would not be vindicating his name. And Enduga continues, because of that sovereign, irrevocable act of covenant, mercy not only may, but must be shown to Israel. Because God entered into irrevocable promises, he can't go back on his name. He will vindicate his name in Israel and even then unto the nations. And we must say that this has not been fully fulfilled yet. This is what we are expecting. This is what we are hopeful for, according to the Puritan hope of Romans 11. And the Jewish apostle in Romans 9 through 11 is taking the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and is showing the partial fulfillment and the expectation of what is yet to come. I think this is concerning to me that the church has lost a sense of expectation. We have, we have our heads down, church. The Puritans were men of hope. Ian Murray again, he says, it colored the spiritual thought of the American colonies. It taught men to expect great outpourings. It prepared the way to the new age of world missions. And Ian Murray continues, but today the church no longer appears before men as a world-transforming power. Gone are the anticipations. Do you anticipate anything? Are you living with expectancy? Are you living with hopefulness? God has concern. God will vindicate. This is my Father's world, and we pray, Our, our Father, what Father will not delight to give good gifts to His children? This is not a world from which we must escape. This is the property of Christ. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For a moment, let's take a brief, a very brief historical overview of a few centuries. 
Ian Murray does it masterfully in that book. I commend it to you, The Puritan Hope. In the 16th century, that was a time of reformation. We know of that. The Lord brought revival upon a godless Europe and upon an institutional church that was selling salvation, and the Lord was gracious. The Lord brought brought revival in the form of reformation in the 16th century. In the 17th century, there then was a, a period of expectation and expansion. And despite modern narratives, the expansion into the colonies was, by, was seen by many in the churches as a claiming lands for Christ. That's how this country began. Now, there were errors and there were problems, yes, indeed, but there were the Puritans and the Pilgrim Fathers who came claiming territory for Jesus. There was this 17th century expectation and expansion. Fast forward to the 18th century, and then we've got further hope and times of great awakenings. Praise God for His reviving mercy. Moving into the 19th century, and you have the explosion of world missions, of which our ministry in 1842 began in London. And so this Puritan hope and this expectation and this expansion and this anticipation was motivating and moving the church into all these new areas. God had concern. God will vindicate. And this ushered forth in prayerful, passionate, selfless, sacrificial labor to the ends of the earth. Then what went wrong? What happened at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century? We had liberalism. We had German liberalism that tore to shreds the inerrant scriptures. The OPC began with Gresham Machen and Christianity and liberalism, and you know the story better than I. And so there was the challenge of liberalism in the 20s and 30s, and your denomination was birthed out of that. But also another new movement was birthed out of the challenge of liberalism, and that was a new theology of dispensationalism. Now, please don't misunderstand. There are various shades of dispensationalism, and I deal with certain people in different shades of, 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 uh, of that uh, whole spectrum. But classic dispensationalism had this new idea It was an escape plan from the wreck of the world, a secret rapture. Well, now haven't we got a problem? Because all we need to do is get our ticket and get out of this mess. And so you have coupled with that escape mentality and easy believism and sign the card and walk the aisle and just say the prayer Instead of salting the earth, instead of substantially saturating this world with Christ and the gospel, the substantial gospel of the God-man, instead we've simply got make a decision and then one bright morning when the sun is rising, I'll fly away. Where is the vindication of God in that? Alexander Duff, Scottish theologian, he said, We can afford to work in faith, for omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. Note that. Omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. God's concern 
God's vindication. So we read thirdly, God's action. Verses 26 to 32, we read God's action for the holy transformation of, yes, Israel. In the mass of idolatrous Israel, what do we read? And again, we haven't time to deal with it in in great depth, but what we read very simply is, I will take, I will gather, I will bring, I will sprinkle, I will cleanse, I will give, I will put, I will cause, I will deliver, and verse 32, I will act. You get it? This speaks of a divine act of of, God. Godly taking and and shaping and molding and doing with an ancient rebellious people solely out of his pure free grace. Not for your sake, but for the sake of my name. And this is Jewish revival. This is saving and sanctifying. This is spiritual life-giving. This is spiritual living. This is Israel's rebirth that we read of here in Ezekiel 36. And the very next chapter in 37 illustrates it with the valley of dry bones and the preach to the bones and pray for the wind. Is this fulfilled? And we say no. Because this is what the apostle was referring to in Romans 11. God is able to graft them in again. That's what the Puritans longed for. And it's not simply a restoration to the land. There seems to be a fascination with the land. This is a restoration to their Lord. Let me make application at this point. Right here in the present, right here in these shores, there's too much fascination for Middle East politics Romantic ideas about the land and all manner of Jewish stuff. As I said to the Sunday school hour, God has providentially placed 42% of his ancient people here. The natural branches of Romans 11 are here. Six million of them are here living side by side, as I said earlier, with 10, 20, 30 million Bible-believing Christians. This is no accident. Read Jewish history or read the history of the Jews in America. And if you haven't read it, go listen to one of my lectures on that Awakening the Conscience course where I give the history of the Jewish people coming to the United States. It's fascinating. It's stunning. It's providential. And God has providentially placed six million of his ancient people who have profaned his name and are stumbling over the stumbling block and don't know Jesus, and 80% of them are Jewish atheists, but that doesn't stop his irrevocable promises that he has pledged to bring to fulfillment. Am I optimistic about their coming to faith? As much as ever. How will it happen? When will it happen? I don't know. Don't ask me to give you a timeline. I won't. But I read, and I read of God doing these things. Alexander the Duff was uh, ordained in the Church of Scotland, 1829. He was their first missionary. But it's interesting because, and it references what I was saying to the Sunday school class earlier, Ian Murray writing again in that book, he says, 
the, his calling, Alexander Duff's calling, involved a new and comparatively untried concept, namely that the church herself is a missionary society. Wow. Yes. A thousand times yes. Missions is from the church, through the church, to the church. The church is the missionary society. You don't outsource it to another missionary society. We are an arm, and we are a rallying point of churches. Jewish revival, according to Ezekiel 36 and Romans 11, is not something you pay the experts to do. It will come by a whole church being armed. Let me just flesh out some of our thoughts and our themes even for the coming days. Arming the church involves three things. Awakening, resourcing, and mobilizing. We are arming the church by awakening the church to this Puritan hope. We are resourcing the church with books and literature, and we are mobilizing the church to seeking to get volunteers to go on the streets with us or volunteers simply to reach your Jewish neighbors, your Jewish lawyer, your Jewish dentist, your Jewish doctor, your Jewish business associate. We are arming the church for that task. God has concern. God will vindicate. God will act. So please, Engage your Jewish neighbors, because God will act. Psalm 102, 13 says, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Please, enough of the petty pessimism, enough of the flyaway rapturology, enough even of Reformed monasticism, where we Reformed folks just hide away and hunker down and just read good books. We have a world to win for Christ. It's His territory. We have a message to bring to the ancient people. And they brought it to us, as I repeatedly say. I am a kingdom optimist, and I hope you are too. Final point, very briefly. The intention for the holy transformation of the world, verses 33 to 36. And just simply we read there, Then the nations that are left all around you shall know, I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. You see, Jewish mission plays an important part in world mission. The great missionary leaders of the 19th century were also deeply concerned for Jewish mission. Think of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor's mind was China. But Hudson Taylor sent a check at the start of every year to a Jewish mission with Romans 1.16 on it to the Jew first. He sent it to the mild May mission to the Jews and Romans 1.16. The mild May mission to the Jews actually sent the check back to him with Romans 1.16 on it. And it simply said, and also to the Gentiles. <laughs> so he, with his eyes on China, was concerned for Jewish mission. The Jewish mission, with its eyes on the Jewish people, also were concerned for the rest of the world because one impacted the other. As we read in Romans 11, verses 12 and 15, let me just reference them very briefly again. Romans 11 and verse 12, we read, If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Their failure meant riches for us. What's going to happen when they are included? 
How much more? And verse 15, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. And that's what the Puritan hope was, a revival of world proportions with the revival of Israel. Professor John Murray, writing on those verses of Romans 11, he says, There awaits the Gentiles gospel blessing far surpassing anything experienced during the period of Israel's apostasy. And this unprecedented enrichment will be occasioned by the conversion of Israel on a scale commensurate with that of their earlier disobedience. In other words, Israel was disobedient big time. But Israel's restoration will be comparable, commensurate. And Israel's restoration will be big time and will have effect upon the world. Someone once said that 12 Jewish apostles turned the world upside down. What will it be like when 12 million of them turn? Now, I don't want to fly away. I want to see King Jesus reigning in the hearts of his blood blood brothers. Samuel Rutherford Again, 1600, Samuel Rutherford prayed to be kept out of heaven that he might see, in his words, thee and thine ancient kirk in mutual embrace. In other words, Christ and Israel in mutual embrace. Please, God, said Samuel Rutherford, keep me out of heaven. I want to see this. Because he read it in Romans 11. We pray Thy kingdom come in that Puritan hope. My young theologian at home may not be convinced. You may not be convinced. I don't know. I read in Ezekiel, and I read in Romans 11. I have concern. I will vindicate. I will act. I will do it. And so I'm an optimist. And when I pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Like Carrie, I expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for your gospel, for your sovereign working in the lives of sinners, those who have profaned your name of Jew and Gentile. We thank you for reaching down into our depravity and by your Spirit making us born anew and gifting us new life in Christ. With such a gift, Lord, make us intentional in the sharing, in the living, in spreading even the very aroma of Christ to all we meet. Thank you for the opportunities you place before us here, even for your ancient people, as you providentially placed six million of them in our vicinity. And we pray that we may be awakened and resourced and mobilized as we go forward expecting and attempting with all Puritan hopefulness for your glory. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.